You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined by Oliver Camacho and special guest panelist Anthony Bereze. All right, 2024 being a leap year not only means it's an Olympiad, but it's also a Rossini birthday year. To celebrate his 56th birthday, we'll do some spring training on the Bel Canto Masters career highlights. Then Maestro Enrique Mazzola takes a free throw on the Aria Celeste Aida, which he considers to be written in a Bel Canto style, albeit for a heroic Verdi tenor. Plus, in the two-minute drill, it's season announcement season. We'll unpack the upcoming offerings from the Met, including Christina Nielsen as Aida. If you watch The Gilded Age, that name should ring a bell, but it's not that Christina Nielsen. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes. Mailbag at operaboxscore.com or just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say tab on our website, operaboxscore.com. However you contribute, you'll get an OBS beer coaster, an OBS lapel pin, and a number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot take. And let me just say... I went to a sporting event this past week. My wife was in an amateur dodgeball competition and I brought my foam finger and it only fits on one finger and it was actually the color of the opposing team. So it was, I got some dirty <laughs> looks, but it was still uh, well worth it. So, you know, really do go to our website and let us know what you're thinking. Oliver Camacho, have you used our foam finger lately? Um, I, you know, I keep it at my office, uh, like so nobody ready to go <laughs> case of emergency blood break um, class. Since we are in the last episode for black history month, I want to do a quick drive by on Xavier Abel, uh, on Ashley's recommendation. Uh, Xavier is the first, uh, African-American player to commit to Tennessee state university's brand new hockey team. The first HBCU oh. to introduce collegiate ice hockey. Uh, Abel was originally from Chicago and was excelling at the local YMCA and floor hockey. And his coach suggested he try ice hockey. And he became good enough to play in Canada's Greater Toronto Hockey League. In 2022, he went to Drury University in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, and he did very well there, totaling uh, 18 points, 12 goals, 6 assists in 34 games over two seasons. In January of this year, he transferred to Tennessee State University. And they're basically building this brand new team around him. Uh, the club will begin uh, playing in 2024-25 season. Uh, okay, so that's uh, Xavier Abel. And now we can welcome Anthony Berezi. Hello. <laughs> He's uh, here. Tony, this is the time of the show where we talk about anything sport. So do you have anything you'd like to complain about or uh... <laughs> not complain about? I just have to say I'm pretty uh, stoked that um, Lewis Hamilton is moving from Mercedes to Ferrari next year in Formula One. It's been the biggest mm. news to come out of Formula One in a long time, and it's quite a bold move. People in the past who've gone from other teams to Ferrari have typically lost. So I'm rooting for Ferrari. Hamilton's my favorite uh, driver. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens next next year. So I don't follow Formula One, but there is a very good looking driver who is somehow in my Instagram feed. I don't it's know if probably Lewis Hamilton. Okay. Yeah. It's like I get all these images of this guy and like he's beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad you agree. Yeah. Well, uh now that with all these weird weather fluctuations in Chicago. Also, I should say the first and only black uh 
you know, drive Formula One driver in, in history, and the reigning world champion has seven world championships. So oh, he's damn. he's nice. arguably the best that the sport has ever had. So, I mean, he might be the best the sport has ever had, but have they seen me uh, <laughs> start up my 2006 Toyota Scion XB with a broken belt in the middle of a Chicago winter? I don't think so. Let's That's talk true. some opera. Let's do some spring training for your ears. So I invited Anthony Barazion, who is our resident Rossini expert, our resident Rossini scholar. And uh, we're going to do spring training. We haven't done it in a while. But since we don't get Rossini birthday every year, uh, we thought we'd take this opportunity to celebrate Maestro's 56th by just doing some quick hits on his career. And I'll start us off by saying that he composed his first opera. It was an opera seria called Demetrio e Polibio in 1806, which would have made him 14 years old. Maestro, as the conductor, artistic director of Southwest Opera or Opera Southwest is uh, Demetrio on your uh, list. It is on our our list, but I I don't consider that his first opera. His first opera really was Cambiar di Matrimonio uh, that he wrote a couple of years later. Demetrio Polibio was kind of a pastiche that he put together with little bits. Uh, A family friend wrote the... uh, um, wrote the libretto and and he just kind of we don't really know how much of it he wrote we only have the the manuscript of one quartet from it and it's kind of it's widely seen as he probably was helped here and there cambiali matrimonio we know he wrote kind of beginning to end um but dimitri polibio has some really beautiful music and some some really interesting stuff we just don't know how much of it is his well well let's so cambiali de matrimonio being his first opera would you call it a comedy yeah it's a farce he wrote a series okay. of five one-act farces for the Teatro San Moise in Venice. And that was kind of a real experimental theater whereby young composers were given a chance to do their first opera. And in fact, he wasn't even supposed to write it. Someone else, a German composer, was supposed to write an opera. Uh, he didn't deliver it on time. And a family friend knew Rossini and said, uh, hey, does your son want to come to Venice uh, you know, for a couple of weeks and write an opera? And he just got on the next, you know, <laughs> the, the, the next carriage and, and boat to venice and and he wrote cambiado di matrimonio and the rest is really hit really history he just took off almost immediately okay that's so exactly why i'm not gonna be on the show next week because uh someone's like hey you want to write an opera in venice and that's where i'm gonna be there you oh, go cool. um so we get to 1812 rossini's about 20 years old well not really 20 years old if you count the leap year birthday but it was the 20th year of him being alive um, yes. And we get we get these two operas, La Scala di Seta and La Pietra del Paragone. Uh, I know Pietra del Paragone or whatever the touchstone from yep. the aria that uh, Bartoli sang on her first Rossini arias disc, which I love. Um, and it's my understanding that Pietra is the introduction of the Rossini crescendo. Is that accurate? Yeah, no, I, I don't want to get too pedantic. It's not it's not entirely accurate. I think for my money, the most interesting thing about uh, Pietro del Paragone uh, is the fact that it's the only opera I know that has an aria about Mississippi in it, um, <laughs> and, and it, it's and, and he he didn't even know uh, it, it, he he spe- he calls it Mississippi P, uh, and it's this little 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 bass thing. He's going Mississippi It's talking about the wind and and the way it blows and stuff in Mississippi, and it's just this cute little crazy little aria that I, I find absolutely delightful. Well, the opera from this 1812 year that I think people recognize, at least the name, is La Scala di Seta, or yes. the, Silken, the Silken Ladder. Yeah. Before we hear, we're going to hear a little bit of an aria from The Silken Ladder, but uh, anything you'd like to add about this comic opera? 
that's just a, I think that's a piece that is widely known even beyond opera audiences simply because it has a, a really great overture with with a, an amazing oboe solo that is done in concert. I think I, I know I heard it in, in in a symphony concert before I ever heard the opera, and that has that's probably the first really excerptable piece of of Rossini's that has stayed in the repertoire. Uh, mm. You know that that delightful little overture. So we're going to listen to a little bit of free scholarship Rossini uh, recording. This is Madi Mesple uh, from her 1975 coloratura aria recital with the Paris Opera Orchestra. This is very unidiomatic Rossini singing, but I think <laughs> it's so much fun. Madi Masplay singing the aria di Piacermi Balzai Core from 1975 with the Paris Opera Orchestra. The conductor was Gianfranco Mazzini. Okay, so after Scala di Seta and Pietra di Del Paragone, the story goes that Rossini began to gain confidence in working with singers. And that takes us to his first real opera seria and maybe his intention of reforming the idea of opera seria, Tancredi. What would you like to tell us about Tancredi? Tancre, it's really this year of, of 1813, which Tanc we get the, the one-two punch of Tancredi, arguably his greatest opera seria, and, or his first great opera seria, and L'Italiana just a couple months later, which is his first really great comic opera. Tancredi, um, it's really hard for us to, to understand just how huge Tancredi was. It, every, every opera company did it. Everybody knew it. Lord Byron you know, got sick of hearing it all over the place. He wrote about <laughs> it in some of his poems. And it was it was just a, a really amazing uh, opera seria that that had still had a lot of the stuff that we love with the Rossini, the crescendo, uh, you know, the, the 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 loves of love of melodies. And the most um, famous part of it, this Ditanti Palpiti, which is the cavaletta to, to Tancredi's entrance aria, it's just a two, three minute little thing. You know, he, our, Rossini bragged about that he, it, he, it took him the amount of time to cook rice to, to compose this aria. <laughs> and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's not a, it is not in any way a showpiece. Uh, it is just a very beautiful little tune that, that is, was parodied by Wagner and Meisterzinger. Um, it really, it really just kind of went all over the place. And Ros it, strangely, Rossini, you know, wrote this opera and it was a huge, huge success. And then I think a year later, he did, um, he did a revival, I believe in Ferrara, and was convinced to write a tragic ending, which was just unheard of at the time mm. for this. And it brought it more in line with the Voltaire story. 
and it was it was done exactly I think one time in his life in that in that one production and no one ever did it and then in the 20th and 21st century we they uncovered this tragic finale and it is it is absolutely a masterpiece in its simplicity and there's there's really nothing like it you talked about uh italiana uh, which is a vehicle yes. for for Marilyn Horn as Isabella. But I would also say that Tancredi was one of her major star vehicles. And I'd love to listen to uh, a little bit of the 1990 concert that she did with Montserrat Caballé in Munich with uh, the Munich Radio Orchestra conducted by Nicolo Rascino. This is just a little bit of Di Tanti Palpiti. Marilyn Horn and one of her calling card arias, di tanti palpiti. Uh, so we're getting past 1813 and now uh, we are going to introduce the idea of Isabella Colbran. Um, Isabella Colbran, who eventually became uh, Rossini's wife. Uh, any quick hits about the first, great... First Isabella? wife. <laughs> first wife. <laughs> any quick hit about Colbran? She was really the the most important soprano of, of well, I guess, what we would call a mezzo of her time. They, they didn't they didn't distinguish so much, make such a distinction back then. But in Naples, and at the time, she was, uh, you know, Naples was was one of the most important opera houses in the world. And I think at the I believe at the time she was the lover of uh, Domenico Barbaia, the the impresario at the San Carlo in Naples, who had not only was the impresario there, he controlled all the gambling. And all of the, and uh, he had the gambling commissions for all of the theaters in Naples. So he just, he was just so rich. And you know, the history goes like she was with him, and then all of a sudden she's with Rossini. You know, and so she scandal. Kind of went, <laughs> but she, you know, she, you know, Rossini was quite a bit younger than her at the time, and, and he wrote some of his most important roles for her: Elisabetta Regina d'Inghilterra, um, uh, Desdemona, and Otello. Um, uh, and, and then eventually her final big role, Semiramide. But he he met her kind of at the end of her of her career when when the vocal problems were starting to creep in. But she still was quite quite uh, an important singer at that time. You brought up Semiramide, and I want to uh, circle back to that. Yes, uh, well, actually, circle forward to it. But uh, before we do, let's talk a little bit about Elisabetta Regina d'Inghilterra, uh, which has two banger arias for the title character Elisabetta. Uh, this is the Cavatina, Quanto è grato all'alma mia, 
uh, which I love this aria so much. And I think the first time you hear it, it's like, wait a second. That's Una Voce Poca Fa. <laughs> Just uh, a little bit of the cabaletta of the cavatina of Elizabeth, Queen of England from Rossini's Elizabeth, Queen of England. We heard none other than Cecilia Bartoli, one of my favorite Rossini singers with the Teatro La Fenice Orchestra and Chorus conducted by Ian Marin. Were you about to say about that aria, Tony? No, or I was about... going to say about the aria. I was going to say that that everybody in the audience, even people who people who've never listened to opera before know Elisabetta Regina d'Inghilterra, simply because the overture was the second time that uh, Rossini used that overture, and the third time was uh, at the Barber Seville. So even if you know nothing about opera, I guarantee <laughs> you, you know the overture from Elisabetta Regina d'Inghilterra. It's well, a very takes... ecologically friendly way of uh, composing <laughs> <Yes>. opera. <laughs> that takes us to the Barber Seville. We don't need to listen to music in the Barber Seville, but uh, probably the, the opera that is synonymous with uh, Rossini. And uh, I have to say that, like, you know, I, I've seen it a number of times, but it can be funny, like done right. Yeah. And yeah. if you commit to the commedia bits, you know, and if you've got good singing, uh, it's a charming, it's a charming show. It's one of the few, like, great overplayed operas that I still will, like, buy a ticket to. You know, it's so much fun. It's also, it's also important to note that it was, it's the first opera that was successful from the time of its premiere to now uninterrupted. There is there's nothing before it that was, you know, Mozart's operas had periods of high and low and it, where they were almost not done at all in Italy. But Barbara Seville was famous everywhere from the beginning till now completely under, uninterrupted. And there's that was the first time that happened. So you mentioned Otello and Colbrand yes. uh, singing Desdemona. Uh, Otello has three tenors in it. Uh, the title it character. Five tenors in it. Yeah, well, three... <laughs> Like three major. three main roles, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and same source material as um, uh, Verdi's. Uh, and at, at there was a point where Verdi, Verdi thought, "Oh, I can't write Otello because Rossini already did it." But clearly, yeah. Verdi Huge. wins that that battle. But <laughs> but uh, he did disagree. hard disagree on that one. Yeah. Well, but... he, he stole this. I mean, we're not going to listen to, but he stole this idea of. Um, the Willow song and the Ave Maria. Yeah, uh, cer certainly the Rossini, the final act of, of Rossini's 
the, the Verdi is not possible because the Rossini first couple acts are based on a French play that was like a reworking of the Shakespeare, and and obviously Verdi goes much closer to the source. But the way that the last act is constructed by Boito for Verdi is is almost directly lifted from the Berio um, libretto for Rossini. So, Tony, you and I did a podcast all about Cenerentola. I think we talked about Cenerentola for, I don't know, an hour. I don't know what you're doing with that. I'd love to hear it one day. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> yeah, I'm still working on um, getting a, a bunch of a bunch of uh, the, these together. But yeah. So he's I just will, holding on to it for blackmail reasons. So I will tell you all that Cenerentola is one of my top five all-time favorite operas. And I love it. I could talk about it for hours, but we're going to skip over that and talk about uh, Armida, another Colbron vehicle with another uh, cast of three tenors and has a fantastic uh, aria. Uh, I guess it's like a theme in variations, D'Amore al Dolce Impero, which I love. And Renee Fleming brought that opera back to uh, the public mind when she did it. Was it at Fenice that she did it? Uh, that famous production where, well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, Armida is a show. Uh, it's, a, it's a great show. Listen to it. Great singing, especially about the tenors. We got Dono del Lago, a great vehicle for uh, a soprano and a contralto. The, the role of Malcolm is amazing, but they both have fantastic music, uh, Elena and Malcolm. Zelmira has a great uh, tenor part uh, for the aria Terra Amica and the Ronda finale for Zelmira. Um, only, only Rossini opera never to have been staged in America yet. Really? Really? Stage. It's been done in concert a couple different times, yeah. but there's been no staging staged version of it yet. Riedi al Solio, you will recognize from Bartoli's uh, Italian recital where she sings whatever the high E at the end. And then everybody copied her after that, uh, like Julie Lejdevna, et cetera. We finished Rossini's Italian period with Semidamide. And I want to take this moment and just talk about the structure of Rossini operas at this point, uh, where things are getting long. And yes. uh, we get we get less uh, secco recitative and more accompagnato. We have these big set pieces like Bel Raggio, for example, which begins with orchestral introduction, then the chorus sings it, and then Semiramide sings it, and then we finally get to the cabaletta. So it takes like a good like nine minutes to get to the exciting part of that. Of that sure, area. yeah, absolutely. What do you think about this era of Rossini where things are starting to get like inflated? I think it's interesting because I know that Otello was the first opera that he wrote that had no secco recit. But I also think it might be the first opera that anybody wrote that didn't have any secco recit. You know, I can't, I'm trying to, I, I don't know enough about, you know, his contemporaries to know if that's true. But he certainly got more and more away from the idea of, you know, e even though there's still a number of operas, Semiramide gets the, the introduzione of Semiramide is so vast and so wide spanning that you 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 completely forget that you know this is just all big number one, right? This is all mm -hmm. the introduzione. It's got these this little fugal section for the for the the you know the choral entrance, I mean, with, with the, the soloist entrances, and then and then you know the, the chorus comes in, and there's so much going on that it is really astonishing. And then all of a sudden you are smacked with these arias that are just very obviously this is an aria you know but yeah. but 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 it's just sort of sandwiched in between a gigantic introduzione and an enormous finale you know so it's it's really he was still 
having to do the thing where you had to write an aria or this many arias for the pe- for different singers. But he he almost if, if I think if he were told that he could abandon that, he he might have. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Bel Raja, which is one of my favorite arias. And I was so introduced great. to it um, with the Joan Sutherland famous recording from The Art of the Prima Donna. Um, and I've listened to, I think, every single version since then. Um, I have to say that when Bartoli came on the scene and she, I felt like she was the first person to put rhythm in that thing. She, like she gets just, Rossini in a way that re- like nobody else does, I think. Part of it's just that she's Italian, you know, that there's just no... There's no bridge between the thought and the expression of the of the of the word and the language. She doesn't have to think about what she's singing about because she knows it. it. That I do think that's an often uh, overlooked thing. But she was in her twenties when she made some of these recordings. I know. And she's I know. so musical, and she really like imbues every phrase with some kind of feeling, and it really makes the case for Colbran being not a soprano. Maybe this stuff really is more mezzo mezzo. You know. Yeah, but well, and, and Bartoli makes that case with almost everything she does. She sings, yeah. she sings Norma, you know, like she, yeah. she's just such an interesting <laughs> artist, like really just, just amazing. That said, uh, I do love my ease in Bel Raggio, so <laughs> I thought we would hear just a tiny bit of one of my favorite performances of Bel Raggio, the Cabaletta Dolce Pensiero. This is June Anderson from 1984. June Anderson with her glassy, like it hurts your eyes when you hear that note um, with the Toscanini Orchestra conducted by Miguel Angel Gomez Martinez from a concert in 1984, Bel Raggio Lusinger from Semiramide. Okay, so Semiramide is the last Italian opera and then we move to France. What does it mean to go to France to you? What it means to France, what it means to go to France is, is that you have access to probably the greatest orchestra in the world and the most sophisticated theatrical uh, apparatus in the world. Not just the Opera, which I believe at the time was called like the Académie or something like that, but there's also the Théâtre Italien. So Rossini went and he had to write a certain amount of operas, but in, in addition to that contract, he was in control of the Théâtre Italien and got to program everything. He got to program you know, music of other composers and to help younger composers start their career. And you could kind of tell he was already thinking about making his exit at that time but being if, if you made it in paris it's sort of like if you can make it here you can make it anywhere kid you know yeah. so so <laughs> really making it in paris was the crowning achievement of of think of his lifetime and it took him a while because you know they said we, they said we want you, you need to write an original opera and so he wrote uh 
you know, he wrote Mo- Moise, which was just a reworking of Mose. And then, says, yeah. no, we, re- we really need a new opera. And then the Siege de Corinth, which is a reworking of another Italian opera that Maometto Secondo. And they're like, no, no, seriously, man. And then he wrote Viaggio Rhin, which is an Italian opera and it's comic. And they were like, we really need you to write an original opera for France. <laughs> and then he wrote Contori, which is a reworking of Viaggio Rhin. And they were like, all right, that's it. You, th- you really need to write a new opera. And I think at that point, nobody really thought Rossini could do it. And what he did was he wrote maybe the most amazing opera ever written, every single note of which was completely new and original. And that's Guillotel, which I, I think is unrivaled. And it's and it and it led the way for Meyer beer. It led the way for Grant, you know, things like Aida, uh, or, or Don Carlo, but even no, even Aida, like grand opera. He sort of set the the stage for Italians to go to to France and write their big French opera. And he was the first one to really do it on that scale. And it's his last opera. Do you feel like he just like, okay, I did it. I'm done. I think he saw what where music was going. I mean, you could talk forever about the, the great renunciation, but I think he saw where music was going. He didn't really understand it. He thought of himself as a child. He thought of himself as a child of like Mozart, classical. You know, he mm-hmm. never considered himself romantic. He didn't really understand what things like Wagner or even early to middle Verdi so he he moved out of out of the way operatically though I think it's people often th- say oh he stopped composing you know he didn't he wrote more music after Guillotel than he wrote you know bleeding up to it he wrote, the bulk of his music was written after Guillotel it's just you know little it's piano sonatas it's it's songs it's it's chamber music but he never stopped writing music he, he was super young too after uh, when he did Guillotel right like yeah like thirty something thirty five maybe yeah, was, well, yeah if you count the leap years he was like. Four. He was like, he's like four years old. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll finish this uh, with a 1971 uh, RA recital from Luciano Pavarotti singing uh, O Muto Azil. Oh, uh, so good. This is with the Vienna Opera Orchestra and Chorus, conducted by Nicolo Rachino. So speaking of Bel Canto and speaking of Aida, um, Lyric Opera Chicago presents Aida beginning March 9th with friends of the show, Russell Thomas. And uh, well, Jamie Barton's not a friend of the show, but I feel like she is. 
uh, Michelle Bradley singing Aida and Reginald wait, wait, Smith. Wait. Is she an enemy of the show? No, but like <laughs> we call people who have been guests friends. Oh, I see. Okay. okay. We I only have like... a few enemies of the show, and it's like, you know, <laughs> Garrett Albrecht and for some it'll, reason. It'll be conducted by uh, Enrique Mazzola, who granted me an interview for my other job. But he got up on this tangent of talking about how Celeste Aida is a bel canto aria and how it's just orchestrated by Verdi in this late Verdi, Verdi period. But if you look at the melody, if you take the melody off the page, it really is a bel canto aria. So uh, that's this little conversation for our free throw. So you invoked the idea that um, Celeste Aida is in the style of a bel canto aria. And that is what's what makes maybe this aria so difficult for the tenor who has to sing in the triumphal scene who has to sing in the judgment scene and has to do this very declamatory music but here verdi is asking him to sing a beautiful line you know um who who can sing like this who are the tenors that have this technique these days i mean you don't have to name names but like i'm just trying to ask rhetorically why is that so difficult well um, first of all, we have to project uh, this opera uh, at the time it was written. So mm -hmm. in 1870s, it was not rare to find uh, tenors with uh, strong uh, bel canto abilities. Mm -hmm. If they were not the tenors uh, singing in Donizetti time, probably were the students mm -hmm. of the tenors singing in... Uh, so the school of bel canto was still active. And, uh, you know, we do not have to be surprised if we um, listen bel canto lines even in Bohème, you know, or in uh, Pagliacci, or even in some uh, Wagner operas, bel canto, you know, is, is like, a, uh, in a way now there is this thing about the end of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. It's not when uh, the year of the end of Roman Empire, all the Romanity, mm -hmm died it continued for centuries and centuries and the same bel canto continued a lot and uh, so probably the the tenors of the 1870s and 1880s were probably more ready to can uh, to sing uh, radames rather than the tenors of the 20th century who had to pass through the verism uh, repertoire which was in a way a sort of bel canto killer yeah but do you think that also the size of the opera house and the size of the orchestra and the tuning little by little creeping higher and higher is actually making Radames more of a heroic role when it actually should still be based in bel canto today. Like if we can come, we can, you know, use this early music approach, this historical informed approach, you know. Well, you, you said something re revelatory. Here, the orchestra size is completely different. Uh, at the time, uh, uh, there were also much, much bigger uh, opera ho houses. And uh, for sure, uh, Verdi needed uh, a bigger voice for, uh, for, I would say, the entire uh, Aida. But, you know, this is a, a, a slow upgrade in uh, in uh, Verdi writing that uh, starts, I would say, with uh, Vesper Siciliani that continues with Forza del Destino and then Don Carlos and arrives uh, here uh, to Aida. And the singers of the time, they knew it, that knew that uh, they needed more power, 
uh, a better concentration of uh, uh, voice and uh, projection and direction. I'm so happy that Lyric Opera has Russell Thomas because um, he is a friend of our podcast and uh, he seems to really understand the history of the tenor and he understands how he fits, but he also knows that in order to have a career that will last, he needs to take care of himself. But he's figuring out a way to fill the needs of these opera companies who want to put Aida on, want to put on Don Carlos, etc., but still, and give them that sound while still preserving his technique. But, you know, at, at the end, if you uh, uh, really uh, watch the orchestra score carefully, mm -hmm. there are many, many, many moments in the opera in which still the singer can whisper, mm -hmm. can use... Uh, what we say, mezza voce, mm -hmm. yes, half voice, yeah. uh, in a in a very belcantistic uh, way. So, uh, and uh, I'm also very careful with uh, my colleagues on stage. I never ask to to push the voice to to sing too much. And uh, you know, the art of the balance between yeah. orchestra and the stage is a very, I would say, Italian yeah. art, not so much uh, German. Yeah. And uh, in US is. Uh, sometimes a little bit lost, also because in the US here we have huge opera houses. Yeah. It's an international style. But yeah. uh, for me, the art of the balancing, mm -hmm. yes? So they find a way that in the piano and in the forte, you can hear always the voice is mm -hmm. very important. But then you get a singer like Tammy Wilson, who's like, doesn't matter, <laughs> go <laughs> for it. That's true, <laughs> that's true. Still, still, always style. <laughs> Russell Thomas with pianist Lucas Nogara singing just a little bit of Celeste Aida. Once again, Lyric Opera of Chicago presents Aida with Russell Thomas as Radames, conducted by Enrique Mazzola. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The Metropolitan Opera and San Francisco Opera have announced their 24-25 seasons. A full breakdown after the drill. British conductor Jan Latham Koenig has pled guilty to two child sex offenses, including messaging a person that he believed to be a 14-year-old boy. Latham Koenig was arrested at a train station where he had planned to meet the minor, who turned out to be an undercover police officer. Birmingham Opera Company has set to lose a substantial amount of funding from the Birmingham City Council. The council said that half of their promised grant for the fiscal year will no longer be given to the opera, and the following year would see funding fall to zero. 
Many other Birmingham arts organizations will also lose funding from the city, including the International Dance Festival, the Birmingham City Orchestra, and the Birmingham Royal Ballet. Speaking of the state of the arts in England, the Musicians Union has put out a call for reports on companies asking to record tracks for live performances of ballet and opera. Northern Ballet Sinfonia musicians are currently protesting mounting pressure to pre-record their performances following the great defunding from Arts Council England. As of the time of recording, a petition to keep Northern Ballet's music live has accumulated over 14,000 signatures. Critical Classics, an initiative to raise awareness of discriminatory language in opera librettos, has released a new performing edition of The Magic Flute. The new version, the first in their series of, quote, operas without a victim, removes problematic language and reworks the story to reflect contemporary values, making Papagena a stronger character, giving Pamina another aria, and making Monocytos the son of Zarasho instead of a sinister foreign stereotype. Who wants to go with me to Iceland next year? A new national opera will begin operations in 2025 as a division of the National Theatre of Iceland. The $5.8 million budget will employ 12 solo singers and a choir of 16 part-time employees and will aim to stage at least one Icelandic work every year. Joyce DiDonato has snagged another major award, this time from Amsterdam's Concertgebouw. I feel immense gratitude to the Concertgebouw for this overwhelming recognition of my commitment to music in our world said the mezzo. I feel more charged than ever to share the pure joy and blissful power of music more radically than ever. The most Joyce DiDonato quote that was ever quoted. <laughs> Praised for his musical prowess and commitment to musical education, conductor Kent Nagano has been awarded the succinctly named Grand Cross of Merit of the Federal Republic of Germany. Quote, Kent Nagano stands for classical music at the highest level and conveys musical enthusiasm far into society, said Hamburg Senator for Culture Karsten Brozda. He stands for freedom, openness, and diversity. In trade news, Central City Opera has announced friend of the show Alison Moritz as their new artistic director. Moritz was selected after a national search and has previously appeared as stage director at CCO, including the 2019 production of Madame Butterfly. Exit stage right, American conductor and arranger Cliff Conlett has died at the age of 76. The conductor had a long career here in Chicago, where he conducted the Civic Orchestra and the Music Now series with the CSO for over 20 years. He also served as a bassoonist in the Lyric Opera Orchestra. Romanian-based Alexandru Moisuc has died at 62. Initially a violinist, Moisuc made his operatic debut in 1984 at the Bucharest National Opera in Verter before becoming a soloist with the Vienna State Opera. He sang over 60 roles and over 600 performances in Vienna and taught singing at the Bucharest Music Academy. And on this day, February 26th, it was the premiere of Antonio Draghi's Tanazia in 1688 in Vienna. In 1752, it was the first performance of Handel's Oratorio Jephthah at Covent Garden. In 1760, it was the birth of baritone Augustin Charon, who sang in the premiere of Iphigenie et Tauride by Gluck. In 1770, the French bohemian composer Anton Reicha was born in Prague. Luigi Cherubini's Le Congrès du Roi was premiered in 1794 in Paris. In 1822, on this day, it was the birth of German hornist Franz Strauss, father of composer Richard Strauss. Uh, he played in the premiere of Parsifal despite his distaste for Wagner as both man and musician, and honestly, sometimes relatable. Donizetti's Il Giove di Grasso premiered on this day in 1929 in Naples. Severio Mercandante's Il Due Figaro premiered in 1835 in Madrid on this day. Gio Giovanni Pacini's Il Duca d'Alba premiered on this day in 1842. 
1878, soprano Emmy Destin was born in Prague. She created the role of Minnie in La Fanchula del West. In 1924, the Swiss opera conductor Silvio Varviso was born. He became the conductor of the Royal Swedish Opera in the 60s and early 70s. In 1927, it was the birth of bass baritone Donald Graham in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He created the role of John in Ned Roram's Miss Julie. In 1944, happy birthday to Finnish tenor uh, Peter Lindros, who... Uh, premiered various uh, pieces by Rautavaara and Salinen, and happy birthday to English soprano Emma Kirkby, born on this day in 1949. And that's your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of a Luceva Nestele from the birthday boy, Peter Lindros. That was a 2000 and, oh, that was a recording made with the Radio Symphony Orchestra. Orchestra, Nailed it. Yeah. uh, Directed by (laughs) Leif Zegerstrom. Uh, A little bit of a sad story uh, to end Peter Lindros' life. He was killed in a car accident. Mm. Uh, He was just 59 and his 18-month-old son, was also in the accident and died. Uh, his his wife and daughter survived. Rough. Um, anyway, uh, speaking of bad news, uh, England. <laughs> England in general. Uh, uh, just a, a little little peek behind the scenes. Uh, uh, and uh, while we were recording that, uh, Anthony was shocked at the child sex scandal from earlier. We've been covering that for a couple of weeks now, but man, rough 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 what was stuff. the name of that show that they did on abc where like they that's exactly <laughs> uh, there's a story from um northern ballet symphonia uh that are protesting that they are using pre-recorded tracks uh for the ballet and uh well, i just know that well, i don't you know, know of a ballet that doesn't use pre-recorded tracks yeah well i'm just saying it's like they have the musicians and now they're recording their work and now they're not you know able to well, this is this is the thing right like i feel like in in the us especially if you have a ballet company it's very much the norm not to have live uh orchestras anymore like i you know the joffrey is the only ballet in chicago that has yeah yeah absolutely yeah and uh you know even even in europe you're starting to see it encroach a little bit i remember um i was there 10 years ago uh it for the I think it was the 200th anniversary of the Paris Opera Ballet performance. Uh, and it was like half and half. Some of uh, they were, they brought in uh, a bunch of groups from all over Europe and Canada. Um, none, none from the U S which I thought was very funny. Uh, and they, they would, they would switch it, switch in and out. There were some pieces that were pre-recorded, some that weren't some pieces that were, you know, electronic scores, which like makes perfect sense to be pre-recorded. Um, and some that, that weren't. Uh, but I wanna, obvious, I want to get I, I want to get Tony's take on, you know, you conduct these companies, some of them with with, you know, smaller budgets than others. Yeah. What is it? What is it you have to do to like look at a score and say, OK, well, that's going to go. We're going to take that part is going to become the clarinet part and the rest is going to keyboard. Like, what are those decisions like? For I, for, well, I would never, ever put anything on a keyboard. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> He's a man yes. of integrity. <laughs> it, with the exception of like, you know, the organ or something in Tosca. Right, right. Know, yeah. Something that, you know, I don't have an organ or, you know, things like that. I just, I think a keyboard is, if you're starting to put woodwinds or, or strings in a keyboard, you, you might as well pack up and go home. Like, I just don't think it, <laughs> it's just, it's just such a different sound. And, 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 and people have tried this before. I remember in the, I think it was the nineties or the early aughts, Kentucky opera did a, a Hansel and Gretel where they did the whole thing with like synthesized, mm. you know, and, and they got in some real trouble with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just think it's a bet. There's one. Like, they got in trouble from the Humperdinck estate or what? <laughs> no, from, from the, the music, you know, the AFM, you know, like, okay. Um, the, 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 the whole idea of, of reducing and using a reduction in almost every most I don't want to say most. Many companies use slight reductions right. of opera. You know, like St. Louis, they use they use slight reductions. The the even the Joffrey the Joffrey Ballet uses a, a quite substantial reduction for the Tchaikovsky, even though they're playing in the lyric opera pit and they could play, you know, the whole thing. Um, they they have a really reduced thing. I I have a business where I make some reductions of of standard repertoire opera for for smaller opera houses and i'm really only taking out like a couple horns a couple trombones one oboe and one bassoon you know and it's mm. it's it's sort of like a you, you can paint yourself into a corner quite quickly but it is it is it's usually not noticeable unless you really 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 know the opera yeah i i think i think it's a a really interesting uh phenomenon i do think there's a blurry line there but uh i don't know i i just feel like ballet companies going pre-recorded feels like a canary in the coal mine <laughs> for other things That's happening. Not in good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's talk, speaking of different versions, amended versions of things, let's talk a little bit about this critical classic story where they're sort of um, yeah. reworking some things. Uh, I don't know so they, how, where, where do you get another aria for Pamina? Well, it's it, it's a Mozart aria apparently that he wrote. I don't know what it's from, but uh, from, from what I gather, they went and found another Mozart, I don't know if it's a standalone aria from a different yeah. opera, uh, and they used the music from that and gave her new words because they felt she was neglected in the first half of the opera. Um, and, and I, I want to read this quote here uh, from Bertolt Schneider, who is uh, sort of the, the, the leader of this critical classics thing. He says, our aim is not to take away the artistic poignancy of the works, quite the opposite. We want them to be experiencing the, the, in the same exciting and stimulating way as, as when they were written without discriminating against or excluding people in the audience, which I think oh. is a, a fair thing to a certain extent. I, I think yeah. that picking um, Magic Flute to do first is a smart one to do here because that is an opera where a lot of kids come. It's an opera where you're not going to see... For the most part, a lot of like challenging deconstructive productions, right? You know, and you already see, you know, even, you know, even in a lot of, uh, even if the text is unchanged uh, from what's being sung on stage, the super titles are going to be omitting the maybe, shall we say, more racially insensitive portions of certain Mozart operas. So I think it's an interesting idea. I, I think, I, I think messing with the libretto was one thing right but uh you know changing mozart structure adding in music yeah um, yeah yeah. i'm i don't i i haven't don't have a full opinion about it because i haven't obviously seen this production or the ver this version in performance yet so i'd have to see it to see how i feel about it but i feel like you know we're in this weird 
time where like the pendulum is swinging and like clearly right now we want more activism we want more inclusion we want more diversity yes i'm all for that but um i don't want you to change mozart's music even with his own music <laughs> right you, well I, I, I am i am i've always been a big advocate of we should be training up our audiences to be more critical to handle better yeah. more challenging material um that's always been what i would like to see first and foremost uh because ideally you can have an audience go see something that is completely offensive to modern sensibilities yeah. and still be able to appreciate it in a critical uh, theatrical context. You know, it, it's kind of like doing like Merchant in Ven uh, of Venice or something, right? You, it can, you can still, it can still be appreciated without rejection of the core uh, uh, yeah. principles there, or the principles can be challenged I mean, even better, this, you know? This version is never going to replace the original, but I do think right. that these these are conversations that need to be had, and we can't just, like, sweep this under the rug, you know? Yeah, like I want to say, like, I've, I've had conversations with people in the musical theater world, not necessarily the opera world, who have had strong opinions about Oklahoma, and I've heard the quote from multiple people, we don't need to do Oklahoma anymore. Now, whatever your opinion of Oklahoma is as a work of art, it is his, his historically significant musical because of the through-composed nature of it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to simply not perform it because it doesn't conform to uh, modern sensibilities feels like... Uh, it feels like you're you're assuming that your audience is too uneducated, too uninterested in challenging their own biases to be able to handle it. You kind of have to treat your audience like children a little bit. And I, I think that, you know, for something like Magic Flute, where the audience is going to be children, I think that's great. For something a little bit more beefy, uh, I think they said on the one of the next ones on their list is going to be like uh, one of the Passions by Bach. Like I, I don't know about that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Saint John I mean? Passion is, is pretty anti-Semitic, <laughs> but but it's also not like a light work of entertainment. You know, it, it, it can't you can't. It, it's not a it's, bunch of children going to see that it, it, exactly. You know, and I I think that that's something that you pr present with that critical framework if you're going to do any sort of staged thing or with you know uh some sort of caveat some sort of program notes maybe even some pre-concert lectures you know stuff like that i i don't think i feel like changing it is is a little bit too much hand-holding in this case all right um, well let's let's get to the meat of this episode as we we invited tony on here to talk about uh two season announcements that came out the met it looks like uh weston you've prepared your own notes for what's coming up next year a lot of stuff happening at the Met. Uh, I, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, they are reducing their season a little bit. They're also tu uh, tuning down the broadcast a little bit. Not as many broadcasts as uh, there have been. H in HD years. broadcasts. HD broadcasts, yes. Sorry, not uh, not radio. Um, they have... Uh, uh, it's, it's a much more conservative season, I think, than they were initially leading us to believe um but we we didn't we didn't know that they were sort of reformulating that strategy but we do have a lady composer we do we've got one we got one <laughs> lady composer we've done it that's of course uh janine tesori's um what is it uh grounded, uh, grounded which yeah. as we know is very highly recommended by ashley hardgrave it's going to be with emily d'angelo who is you know phenomenal i i'm really excited to see that one i'm i'm told the production is going to be very very much a technological marvel as well. 
Um, I will say a lot of these productions, not, not, not cheap ones, you know, uh, so a lot of older productions, but not like, you know, uh, not, uh, you know, uh, rubbing together the last two pennies kind of productions. Yeah. Well, we begin with Aida, which is in a new production, uh, starring who are oh, Christina Nilsson, not the Christina Nilsson from the Gilded Age, from <laughs> yes. the inauguration <laughs> of the Met in 18, whatever, but the current Swedish soprano Christina Nilsson. Um, they will have Alina Garancha and Judith Kutazi uh, splitting the role of Neris and uh, Brian Yeag and uh, Peter Piotr Bachala splitting the role of Radames and Quinn Kelsey splitting the, the role. Yes, Quinn Kelsey splitting the role of Amanarazra with Amor Tuvshin Enkbat and Eric Owens is actually also in the. I don't think he would sing Amanarazra these days. He must be singing. Oh, I think he would. Yeah. I yeah. believe in him. <laughs> okay. Um, I feel like he's past the uh, Omneris stage of his career. He's more of like in the... You think he's like a rom face? Yeah. But who knows? Maybe he's going to do it. So uh, We are following up Aida. We're going alphabetical order here, I think. <laughs> Aina Damar by Osvaldo Goliov um, with the libretto by David Henry Huang. Uh, living composer, big points for that. I love this opera, actually. Uh, if you don't know it, it's uh, based on the life of... Federico Garcia Loca, who was assassinated by the fascists during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, he was uh, gay and a socialist, which is a double trouble for <laughs> for that era in time. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Angel Blue, Gabriela Reyes, um, uh, Elena Villalon, friend, um, friend of the show. Yes. Uh, we also have Daniela Mack in there, Alfredo Tejada, uh, Roman Ruiz Alonso. Uh, this is going to be really exciting. I don't know the conductor, Miguel Harth Bedoya. Yeah, this is yeah. Met, Met, uh, Met debut. I don't know him, but oh, I'm, he's, I, yeah, he's he's a serious. Conductor yeah, sure. he, he's. Uh, I, I'm always excited to see you know a, a non wasp name in the in the pit. This is. Uh, I, I love this opera. I think this is one the Met should have done a long time ago, but I, I think this is sort of establishing the the new normal for the Met is that they will do living composers, but they have to be kind of have a sort of a track record of success for either the opera itself or for the composer uh, involved. Jumping ahead to a brand new, a relatively new opera, uh, John Adams, I think it premiered in San Francisco, I forget. Uh, I think yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, Anthony, Anthony and Cleopatra with Friend of the Show, is, Paul. Well, what a flex. Like, I just, you know, it's like Martin Scorsese remaking Ishtar or something. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just like, wow. That's I mean, I, 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 I hope. I mean, I hope this didn't. This doesn't work out like the Samuel Barber, Anthony Cleopatra. Well, that's at, what I'm saying. It's, it's yeah, synonymous it's, with a flop. Like, I just, yeah, it's like it's just amazing that he. That I, he, I will that say the, the Samuel Barber opera incredibly underrated. I think it's fantastic. Agreed. I think it was Franco Zeffirelli's fault more than anything yeah. that, it, that it failed. Yeah. If famously, if you don't know the story, so many things went wrong with that production. It flopped. I believe, um, who was this? Was it, was it, um, Leontine Price? Leontine was, Price yeah. You had everybody got, in it. You know, Alvin Ailey was the choreographer. It was, it was, it was insane. But she got so trapped in like this period, uh, this pyramid, like yeah. during rehearsals and things were breaking. It was basically <laughs> cursed. So <laughs> if there is such a thing as curses, I would be terrified to put this one on at the match. Yes. But I am excited to see it because I love me some John Adams. <laughs> and it stars yeah. friend of the show, Paul Appleby, uh, Grammy Award winner, Julia Bullock, 
uh, Gerald Finley and Elizabeth Deshawn. Moving on to Barbara Sula. We just talked about that opera. This is going to <laughs> mark the Met debut of friend of the show, Jack Swanson. Yeah. Oh, have you, wonderful. Have you heard Jack sing before? Uh, yeah. When I conducted Semiramide in 2017 at, at uh, Opera Delaware, he was in the Chanarentola. Okay. So he was just in the other show. So I, I, I knew him. We hung out. And he's so good. Really he's phenomenal. Him. Uh, Isabel Leonard and Igo Akhmetshina will split the role of uh, Rosina. Uh, Davide Luciano sings Figaro, uh, splitting it with uh, Andre Zilikovsky. Uh, there are more people in this cast, but I'm excited. Larry about Brownlee's it. in it. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Of the show, Larry Brownlee. But Jack Swanson, God love him. Yeah. Uh, La Boheme, we need to talk about it. But Eileen The production Perez. that just won't die. Yeah, friend of the show. <laughs> is it, is it a Zeffirelli production? Yes. <laughs> Uh, like friend of the show, Benjamin money. Bernheim, uh, is getting to sing Hoffman. I think I might actually mm. go. I might go to New York to see that because I love. He'd be that great movie. in that, and uh, it's one of his calling card roles. Aaron Morley singing Olympia. Love her. Uh, yeah, Prediende as Antonia, Clementine Margan as Julieta, Christian Van Horn as the villains, and Vasilisa Berzhenskaya, who just sang Cenerentola here in Chicago as Niklaus. Um, Awesome cast, really excited. Uh, Fidelio with Lisa Davidson. I might go there for that too. That's going to be awesome. Uh, Tomasz Kuznetsky as Pizarro and David Butt Philip as Florestan. Susanna Mal Mike, Susanna Mikey Malki uh, conducts. I nailed it. Frau Ona Schatten, <laughs> that's one for you, Weston. Oh, that's I'm so excited for this one, Oliver. You, you, you don't understand. <laughs> go ahead. If, if, if you, our listeners, don't know why, go back. I think it's like it's like two years ago. We did. Uh, we had Henry Rose on the show for like Harry Rose. Harry Rose on the show for like three episodes, just talking about the Frau Ona Schatten, and it is it is great. It is the best Strauss opera, bar none. Uh, not up for debate. And this is wow. the kind of scale that you you can only do this opera uh, in the U.S. with uh, with an opera company with the scale of the Met. So did you see it in 08 when uh, when they did it? There's always that no. lyric did it. I wish I was I was still a baby. I'm I'm the young one on the podcast. Okay, <laughs> that will start. Elsa Vanderheber Vandenheber as the Empress, uh, Lisa Lindstrom as the Dyer's wife, and Nishtema as the nurse. And Russell Thomas as the Emperor. Ryan Speedo Green, friend of the show, as yeah. the Spirit Messenger. Um, moving on to Moby Dick uh, by Jake Heggie, that will star Brandon Jovanovich, uh, Stephen Costello, Peter Matei, pretty uh, Janai Brugger as Pip. That's an amazing cast that they have there. Yeah, great. That's a production, great casts. A production from Dallas, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and DC. Uh, not the production we had here in Chicago. Uh, Marriage of Figaro, conducted by Joanna Malwitz in her Met debut cast, including Michael Sumuel and friend of the show, uh, Luca Pisaroni. Michael Sumuel's in that? Yeah, yeah. As, uh, as Figaro. Oh, that's fantastic. Rosa Feola and Olga uh, Kolchinska uh, splitting the role of Susanna. Uh, Josh Hopkins and Adam Paketka splitting the role of the Count. Federico Lombardi, who's incredible uh, as the Contessa, splitting the role with Jacqueline Stucker. I've never heard of her. I've heard of her, but I've never heard of her. And uh, Emily D'Angelo and Marianne Cravassa splitting the role of Cherubino. Queen of Spades returns with uh, Sonia Yancheva uh, singing Lisa and Brian Yade as um, Hermann. And Yaletsky sung by uh, Alexei Markov? No. 
Who is Chilevsky? Um, oh, Igor Golovatenko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was, I was, I, I worded that poorly on the sheet. With, uh, with Carrie Lynn Wilson. Rigoletto returns with Quinn Kelsey in one of his calling card roles. Uh, Nadine Sierra as Gilda and Stephen Costello as the Duke. Zalome, new production. Go ahead for it. Very yes. excited. I love a new production of Zalome. We got Yannick Nadeze Sagan conducting. Uh, we got Klaus Gut, who just did um, the production of uh, um, uh, the the Janacek here in um, in uh, yeah, you know, uh, here in Chicago. So you so if you saw that, you kind of know the 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 vibe. Uh, lots of symbolism, very Victorian sounding. We got Elsa Van Dyke Heaver as Zalame. Uh, we have Peter Matei uh, with as uh, which is going to be great. Uh, Gerhard Ziegel, uh, uh, Michelle de Young. Uh, yeah, uh, Piotr uh, Bucheski as uh, Naraboff. It, it's it's gonna be a great. I I love Zalame. I can never get enough. Then we get Tosca with friend of the show Lisa Davidson and Freddie De Tommaso. Very excited about that. I'm not really a big Tosca fan, but I would go see what? that. Love Freddie De Tommaso. Yeah, <laughs> you've offended a, our guest. It's a sh- wow. shabby shabby little shocker. What are you, uh, Joseph then, Kerman? You don't like Tosca? <laughs> <laughs> then Trovatore with Michael Fabiano and Rachel Willis Sorensen, friend of the show. Uh, splitting the role of Leonor with Angela Mead and Jamie Barton and Oles- Olesia Petrova splitting the role of Azucena. Ryan Speedo Green, uh, another Verdi role for him, Ferrando. Um, moving on to Magic Flute, the non-holiday version, the Simon McBurney production, which we saw uh, last year or two years ago, conducted by Natalie Stutzmann. Goldish was that Schultz. the one that was, uh, is that the, the sort of the animated one? No, that's the one no, that has, no. yeah, it's anime, yeah, with like old timey animation. Like, yeah, the one, the yeah. one that was like Philly did it and it was the Coma Show. Oh, I thought this was no, a different No, 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 not that one. Not that one. No, no. Not that one. We hate that one. Uh, Golda Schultz <laughs> sings Tamino. Ben Bliss sings ta- uh, Tamino. Uh, our, uh, our friend, uh, friend of the show, Catherine Lewick, returns as Queen of the Night. All right. So, big picture. Yes, they are reducing the number of HD broadcasts. I suspect when we see the radio season, which has not been. Um, released yet that we're going to see more archival productions this year, the 23 24 season. Right. So many archival productions. Uh, and they're doing, you know, concerts and stuff like Verdi Requiem and Beethoven 9 and Mozart Requiem in the season. So, you know, they're saving money. Uh, that's par for the course these days with the, the economy as it is. Hopefully, this is like the last year where we're being cautious and we could see more adventurous seasons uh, coming in 25, 26. We jump ahead to San Francisco. Uh, Same story. (laughs) Same story. We have Unbala and Mascara with Michael Fabiano and Liana Harotunian. We have uh, The Handmaid's Tale. That's going to be good. Yeah, talked about that. That's not new, right? That that has been done. No, that came out like like in the 80s, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. a long time ago. Uh, Tristan Rizolda with Simon O'Neill and Anya Kampa. Uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is part of their lineup. <laughs> the, um, the cheap one. <laughs> yeah, there are symphonies that do this yeah. repertoire. I know. So <laughs> Carmen with uh, Jonathan Tettleman, the man of the hour, Luis Alder as Michaela, um, who and Ave Mode Ubo. I've never heard of her, but maybe she's great. Uh, La Boheme <laughs> with Pene Patti and uh, Nicole Carr and Lucas Meacham, friend of the show, and more people. And they close with Ida Maneo with friend of the show, Matthew Polansani, friend of the show, Daniela Mack, and friend of the show, uh, Ying Fang as Ilya, and Elsa Vandenheber as a lecturer. Elsa Vandenheber has a busy year next year. She She's really does. Everywhere. So 
Yeah. But once again, it's it's kind of a thin season. I mean, it, they, they, the strategy right now seems to be sort of consolidation into not necessarily having cheaper individual productions, but less of them, certainly. Um, you know, Tristan, Fraunhofer are not going to be cheap, um, but, you know, it's at the expense of other ones. San Francisco in particular, it seems to be struggling a little bit. This is actually, I think it's something like, the, it's like their fourth smallest season ever, including like the, the depression years, which is a little concerning. They're still spending 90 something million dollars. Um, yeah. It, 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 like, like I said, it, triple what Santa Fe opera has as a budget. It's, it's unbelievable how little, how much there's you spending to do how so little. Exactly. And this is the thing with like a lot of these like really hyper massive older companies it, it, is this, you know, this continuing existential crisis coming out of the pandemic where like audiences aren't back up to where we want them. I, what do we do? Uh, Anthony, you know, you're you're an artistic director, you know, yourself. What's your solution? What would you tell the Mets and the San Francisco to do to solve I, this I problem? Just, I look at these seasons and I'm going, what? Why? How are these? how are these speaking to the communities that you're purported to serve? Like, like it's not like New York is a, is a nothing town. New York is an, is one of the most important cities in the world. Why are none of these operas uh, speaking to the New York experience? Like what, what is that yeah. about? Like, like how is that every opera company in America is doing things that, that speak to their community. And I don't see any of that at, at, at these, at these companies at all. Like the way you get, people in the doors to do stuff that's relevant for them yeah you know it, it's like what, what, what was it when when uh like when the lyric to fire shut off my bones like the, the the response was insane incredible people who had never been to the opera came yeah because it was targeting like a community that 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 is really underserved by opera and people responded to it i just don't know like the Handmaid's Tale feels so 2018 or something. I I don't know. Like you know, yeah. the, the, show, the show is over. You know, it, it maybe maybe they're like anticipating another Trump winner. So I don't know what's I don't know what's going on with that. Like I don't yeah. know why that's the piece. I just I look at the rep choices and I and I go, what? Who is this for? And and if you're just retreating back into Carmen's and Bohems, like you got to do Carmen's and Bohems. But when when that's all you're doing. I don't know, man. And, and and I'm so sick of companies blaming the pandemic. I mean, come on, give me a break. Like there are companies, people are back and people are back doing stuff. You know, I went yeah. to Wonka with my you know niece and nephews. Theater was packed. Like people do still want to congregate. I just feel like that's how long are we going to use that as an excuse? Isn't there a Willy Wonka opera? There is. It's a really interesting piece. They did it at Wexford, I believe it was premiered. And then I, I saw it at, at Opera Theater St. Louis so not what a kid would want it's like almost eight tone or 12 tone it's, it's kind of like the the charles warren and uh haroon in the sea of stories like a children's opera but with the most dense you know unapproachable harmonic language you can possibly imagine i loved it i thought it was great well that might not uh, be the ideal one to get audiences well, yeah, back yeah, in know, the theater but to bring in your audience but but san francisco and new york are, are are two of the most important cities in america and they have rich histories cultural histories that I just, I mean, I, I can say this because neither of them are ever going to hire me to conduct. But like, the, <laughs> not the, now, anyway. Not, I don't know what, what, how they're speaking to their community at all, and, and I think that's a, that's a huge missed opportunity. 
Well, uh, with Frau and shot and they're speaking to me at least. So I will be the <laughs> only one in the theater having a great time with that, like 160 piece orchestra. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a weird proportion. All right, yeah. let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. It's how we wrap up each and every show, even if George isn't here, even if Anthony Bereze is here. It really is a topsy-turvy world today. Oliver Camacho, let's start with you. Well, I have a bad call because it turns out we were punked. Uh, Frank Luzzi sent me a link and it turns out that uh, that Andy Reid, that um, opera singer in the, in the, I guess, in the Chiefs, uh, or that choral singer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in the Kansas City Chiefs, that's really not Andy Reid. That's an Andy Reid lookalike. And the real person, <laughs> the real person singing uh, is a singer named Matthew Black. And uh, uh, yeah, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to post that video to... Is the, ten- uh, the tenor Matthew Black? Uh, I don't know if he's a tenor or not. Um, no, maybe not. I'm thinking something else. Yeah. Anyway, Damn so he, he dresses up as Andy Reid. And I think we went for it and we, we gave... Andy Reid a shout out, and that's not really Andy Reid. So if there's that's a bad call. Yeah, that's a bad call. So we have <laughs> egg on, we have egg on our face about that one. Anthony Bereze, do you have a call for me? Uh, just some stuff. I want to a couple things I want to promote. I'm currently in uh, Sarasota with the Sarasota Opera, conducting uh, Haydn's Linfedelta de Luza uh, between March 15th and March 23rd. At my company at Opera Southwest, we're doing the New Mexico premiere of uh, Jorge Martin's Before Nightfalls in conjunction with the National Hispanic Cultural Center and the New Mexico Gay Men's Chorus. It's a wonderful opera opening uh, and playing March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS using the Support the Team tab. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is me. For guest co-host Anthony Bereze, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you recognize Joyce DiDonato's commitment to music in our world. We're back with an all-new show next week, I think. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more joy, and more radical, blissful power. Join us.